Welcome to Foot Guns, home to the only hype-free, investment-based crypto podcast. Satoshi Nakamoto said it was going to happen. You know, I want half a million dollars of exposure to it. Ethereum. And, you know, everybody that's trading this was doing what I was doing today. A 51% attack where the chain split into three different chains. All of a sudden, I have Ethereum in my MetaMask account. And so anything from a regulatory standpoint that stifles DeFi is bad to me. Hello, welcome to Foot Guns. It's me, uh, Wasabi Boat Research, and I'm talking with Hal today. And uh, we've got a jam-packed agenda. We don't have really any like main topic, but we're kind of uh, going to do like a DeFi news roundup because there's a ton of stuff going on and just... Uh, try to hit a bunch of different topics that have been in the news or we've been thinking about. Um, so yeah, Hal, good to, uh, good to be chatting. How's everything going with you? Uh, good. I mean, uh, honestly kind of boring, right? Bitcoin hit an all time high and it's just sort of been like bleeding off since then. And, um, I mean, there was like that one weird day where something happened on Binance where, you know, things wicked down to $8,000. Um, we didn't actually have that on our agenda, but you know, I, I did see, uh, prominent um trader post on uh, twitter that they thought that that was actually like criminal that binance would allow for something like that to happen and of course binance said to a customer that i talked to that they you know it was a glitch that one of their customers had experienced and that uh they would you know try their best to make sure it doesn't happen again so can you describe what happened again so like we're you know, Bitcoin is around what, like 60, 62. And then how long was it? It was basically like a flash crash, right? Where it goes down massively and then shoots right back up. But like, how, how far did it go? And how long did this opportunity last? Yeah, it was just, uh, you know, I think a minute or something like that. And then I know people that, you know, responded uh, that are Foot Guns listeners that said that um, they had orders that should have been filled because the price went down to that levels and they didn't. So um, you know, the sort of explanation that I'm hearing, you know, from Binance or rumors or whatever, is that it was just one customer basically trading with themselves that caused the the price to go down like that because they had some sort of algorithm, you know, that was buying and selling. And I guess it <laughs> uh, drove the price down because, yeah, nobody else's orders got filled. So, some yeah, something really, really weird was happening. It also makes you wonder uh, if orders are being filled with, uh, you know, a democratic priority on uh, Binance. Uh, but then, you know, what ended up happening is uh, it, it, it caused sort of like a flash crash across all crypto markets. Um, so, you know, some, some of the exchanges like Coinbase didn't really see much, but then FTX, I think, I think it went down at least to like, you know, where the current price is like 15, dollars $59,000. And this all happened, you know, just like in a minute or something like that. Um, so yeah, pretty weird, nothing to do with really anything and, you know, affected the whole market. Um, kind of, kind of obnoxious, not, a, not a very good look for crypto exchanges, like centralized exchanges, in my opinion, there's, um, you know, uh, commodities exchange, uh, you know, in America, they have, they have controls that are, you know, basically like, Hey, we're going to not let you trade if this asset goes down uh, at a certain rate at a certain speed and you know everyone like is like oh well bitcoin trades all you know all over the world and and whatever but 
you know, clearly this was a single player manipulating the market, right? And so you want to have some protection against that. And, uh, you know, even though Bitcoin is decentralized and, and that sort of thing, yeah, you don't really want to have like this one exchange that can have a huge impact across the whole market, in my opinion. That's interesting. So like, I mean, one of the things that you see a lot in crypto are these cascading liquidations. So why didn't this flash crash, like I imagine, right? Like we're in fourth quarter, the whole narrative is like, okay, everything's gonna gonna rally into the fourth quarter and be huge. Why didn't this like wick down to 8,000 liquidate everyone and basically like fuck fuck the whole market like why did it manage to to not cause this liquidation chain yeah i mean mainly because it was just on binance us which doesn't have a lot of um liquidity relative to you know like binance itself yeah i mean if this had happened on binance itself this probably would have been pretty miserable probably could could have ended the entire uh bull run i mean it, it it certainly has put um uh, a dent in it, and in, in, in my opinion, I I put something out pretty immediately after this happened, and I said, you know, one of the things I've noticed in crypto is that uh, when you see these like giant wicks like this, they tend to go and and fill. Of course, the one on Binance that US isn't going to fill because that was just obnoxious. But the um, the one you know the one that ended up happening on FTX and some of the other bigger exchanges uh, has now filled. Right, we're 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 sitting at like. You know, we went down to like 58, 59 yesterday, and now we're sitting around 60. So, you know, I mean, it, it definitely spooked some people out of the market. It definitely liquidated some people. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it is good news, right, that, that we're still, still at 60K. It means that uh, there wasn't just like a whole bunch of, um, you know, 50x longs or whatever that were waiting to get liquidated back down to 8k or something like that. Um, so we have yeah. U.S. Uh, regulators to thank for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did we did clean up some of the leverage um, just this year. Like you know, what the last time Bitcoin was at 60k, uh, I think you could take out a hundred times leverage on some exchanges. So what do you think? I mean, the narrative is, is I guess it has been fourth quarter, everything goes up, go, go, go. Is that intact or is there, are you just kind of looking at it day by day? Yeah, I mean, we, we broke the all-time high. I don't, like, technically... If if you make a if you make a new high, you know it's it's much more rare that you're actually going to see like a macro double top. The um, the scary thing would have been if had if Bitcoin had stalled at like sixty five k and then it was doing what it's doing, but it just you know it just barely squeaked up past the all time high. What uh actually how high did it go? It was um, let's just call it like three and a half percent. So, I mean, yeah, it, it just barely made a new high so that maybe what we're doing now is just like doing some consolidation before we go back up. I don't know. I don't know where we go. Like, you know, some of the some of the people that I respect now that we're, you know, it's almost November. And I mean, they're, they're still calling for price targets like 150, 190, 200K on Bitcoin. And, it, it you know, it, it kind of feels like when you're reading a, a novel that you really like, right. And there's only a hundred pages left and you're just like, how the hell are they going to end this thing in the next hundred pages? You know? <laughs> so, 
So I, I am I am skeptical in the sense that like we're we're just getting like so close to the end of the year, um, and then also it just you know it it does feel like that crowded trade of of everyone re- realizing like oh yeah Bitcoin has this like run up at the end of the year, um, so yeah I don't know I I mean for me I I still always just like pay attention to price action and um, you know Bitcoin right now is like forming a falling wedge which you know, tends to go up afterwards. Uh, the only thing about a falling wedge is it's like, it's not, you know, at this point, if we break up, like the, the target of it is not above the all time high, you know? So, so there's, there's more work to do. There's, there, there have to be buyers that like come into the market right now. I don't, I don't think that, you know, if, if the Bitcoin market is like crypto Twitter and, you know, some hedge funds and like Michael Saylor and, and, and whatever, uh, I think, you know, I think we're done. But but if if some new buyers decide to start coming in, uh, I don't think any of those people that I just described are going to sell their Bitcoin. So so, yeah, we could go a lot higher. So one other uh, possible ending for the story is alt season, right? Like we have, you know, this is like another like crypto Twitter meme where it's like, okay, Bitcoin pumps and then ETH pumps and then it's alt season. And now we're in this uh, dog coin season where you have like Shiba Inu. And uh, I still have some of the uh, Doge NFT with the hashtag DOG that's going up like 50% today. So like, do you believe in these like, meme kind of like rotation cycles that where alts go after BTC and then, you know, BTC ETH alts or, or what, what do you, do you think there's anything to that? Or is it just kind of this meme that gets repeated over and over? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it kind of goes back to the thing that boomer and I are talking about where like, once you're in crypto, you never leave. So like, for instance, if you look at the, 24-hour volume on Dogecoin versus Shiba Inu, like you know, Shibu Shiba Inu went down 13% today, and Dogecoin went up 26%. And there was between the two of them, uh, like 50 billion dollars in volume. So yeah, I mean, if if everyone in Dogecoin in Shiba Inu decided to rotate out into USDC, like the prices of both of those coins would crash and and they would you know not recover as much liquidity as they they have but yeah if they're if they're rotating around (laughs) between each other right then it like it it makes the whole thing start to like feel even more um like they're making a bunch of money when when the reality is uh, you know all they're doing is um uh, you know artificially inflating this liquidity i do think that there's a lot of smart Bitcoin traders that, you know, basically have laid the trap many, many months ago, buying just a little bit, you know, I mean, it was, I, I made that tweet last night that people seem to like that, uh, you know, everyone's like, well, if I just put a $1,000 into Shiba Inu, I'd have a billion dollars. And so I had just tweeted and was just like, yeah, if I had just put a billion dollars into Shiba Inu, I would have 144 million billion dollars. This is like if if everyone had put a thousand dollars into Shiba Inu, it wouldn't like we wouldn't be talking about this right now. Right. Like it would have gone up a long, long time ago. You can't you can't put money into these things without affecting the price. Right. 
Um, so like the reason it's going up is liquidity is thin on it, right? I, I am, I am really, really the the thing that's like kind of blowing my mind right now is that there is thirty five billion dollars of daily volume on it, and it has a thirty seven billion dollar market cap. The only other crypto that like is competitive with that right now is Tether, which you know Tether traded a hundred. $10 billion and only has a $71 billion market cap. But there's no other cryptocurrency that has that much, um, li- you know, liquid volume on a, on a 24 hour um, scale or whatever. Even, even Dogecoin is, you know, it's only like 40% or less than 50% of, um, of its actual market cap that's moving around. And, you know, like for instance, like USDC has a $32 billion market cap and um, a $4.5 billion uh, daily volume. So I am I am really curious what the hell is going on. The fact that Shiba Inu has so much volume, um, because when you see that much volume, that means that like you can get out, right? That means that if you bought a long time ago and, and you now have like millions of dollars or whatever off of your $10,000 investment, uh, you could sell all of that coin without really driving the price down too much because there's just so many people buying right now. Um, but as soon as those buyers go away, <laughs> uh, that price is going to like, you know, collapse. So I don't know. I don't, you know, are people, are people doing something with Shiba that neither of us know? Or is this just like, yeah, is this just one of those things again where, People are getting into crypto for the very first time. They look at Bitcoin. They look at Ethereum. You know, they see the price is high. They don't want to put any effort into actually learning what the hell cryptocurrency is and why it's useful. And then, you know, you just like go on to CoinGecko or whatever. And you're just like, okay, seven days. This one's going up. I'm going to buy it. Right. (laughs) Like, yeah, I don't know. That's what it seems like to me is happening. I'm just looking up right now. I'm trying to think like, because Shiba Inu is a ETH native coin, right? Because when they made it, they sent half to Vitalik and there was like a big story back over the summer or whenever that was. But like they've gotten on Coinbase. So there, there's a, a guy on Twitter, I forget who it was, but like uh, Sue uh, retweeted him and it was like, okay, the case for Shiba Inu, number one, it pumped in the past and then crashed. Number two, it got listed on Coinbase. Um, that's basically it, right? So like if it's something that has had like a meme pump and retail has access to it and it's crashed, there's a pretty good likelihood that it can pump again. Like is that is that a reasonable thesis? Like do you do you, is the play to just like wait for the crash and then buy a small bag and wait for the next pump for one of these things? Yeah, I mean I don't Again, I'm like, how do you? I don't have a thesis around this thing. I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying. I, I, I always try and like assume that I'm wrong and that, you know, there is something about this that I'm missing or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, I bought it earlier. You know, I bought it like earlier. What was it? Late September or something? And um, just simply because. I heard the rumor that I was going to be on Coinbase, but then I bought like, you know, I bought $500 and then I put in another $500, which like, I think it turned into like 8,000 or something. I've already taken 3000 out. Um, but I just, I bought, 
an amount of money to me that if this thing went to zero, I wouldn't care. And I think a lot of people like when I when when you say that to them, and especially when you see like something that happened here, right? Where I mean, this just like skyrocketed. They're just like, oh shoot! Like the next time I see that opportunity, I'm gonna put you know sixty percent of my portfolio into that. And it's just like you know, if you had done that, you would have gotten shaken out on October fifteenth when the when the price went down a whole bunch or whatever because you you put way too much into it. And so then you're like really focused on price and, and that sort of thing. Um, because there's just no fundamentals, right? You're just, you're not buying this thing because you have any, any reason to buy it. Even the like technicals on it. I mean, it made this like little, um, uh, what was like ascending triangle or whatever, which like should break out. But like the technical breakout of this is, <laughs> is not uh, whatever, crazy thousands of percentage that it's gone up. I mean, from the all time low, it's uh, what is it? How many zeros is that? So that's a million. Yeah, it's 119 million percent up in 11 months. <laughs> mm. I, yeah, so I don't know. I'm just like, you, you see that and you're just like, why would anyone buy that right now? Right? Like, uh, so I just don't, I don't know. If you have like a strong narrative, if you can be like, Oh, or, you know, I mean, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's narrative, I guess, sort of sounded crazy. But for me, uh, the, the reason that I don't like Shiba Inu's narrative is it just sort of sounds like every other narrative. You know, it's like, why would I buy Shiba Inu over GameStop, right? Like, why would I, uh, I call it GameStop, GameStop. Um, you know, it's just like a meme. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess like, should you have some exposure to memes in your portfolio because they're going up? Like I sure. Yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and make you lose money. Like, but yeah, probably you don't want to buy Shiba Inu uh, after it's gone up 119 million percent in 11 months. Yeah. I think the only mistake you can make in this game is to uh, think that something has fundamentals and is also a meme stock. It's either a meme stock or a meme coin. And it, in that case, it should have no fundamentals or cash flow or anything. But trying to make like a sushi or a spell. Oh, that's into, interesting. Into didn't, you, uh, didn't you respond to some, some, who was, uh, someone was tweeting about that today and they like included spell? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I yeah. I don't, I, it's kind of like an idea that I'm trying out. I don't believe it. Uh, I don't believe it 100%. But yeah, like I think. I do think that if it's the meme, then it has to be based on some like future. It's, it's it's about a future belief. It's about like something that will go up in the future about a, the group dynamic. And then to actually have like a cash flow that you can value something off of is just kind of a buzzkill in that situation. Yeah. Well, were, were you around when um, I mean, because to be fair, I think that at one point, Wi-Fi, you know, Wi-Fi, however you say, year in finance um, was a meme. Like, you know, that first um, DeFi summer, I feel like everyone sort of was just like, I don't believe it, you know. And I mean, they were right in the sense that like the price of the actual token came down. But, you know, uh, urine is still around. They're still producing yield for people in DeFi. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like you know, for instance, like Danny has, you know, this, this DeFi 2.0 meme or whatever. Um, 
it does it does feel similar to like the Dogecoin thing, except for it's like the meme amongst the people who are supposed to like know what's happening, you know. So like every everyone's like convinced themselves that this is the narrative that's like the real narrative, the fundamental narrative. You know what I mean? And I think that if we could get someone that's like a real big Shiba Inu person on here, I don't know if they exist um, to like tell us why they're bullish Shiba Inu. Um, you know, and I would, I would like to have the person that like put a thousand dollars in, turned it into 44 million. And then they took 41 out, right? Like <laughs> why would you leave $44 million in Shiba Inu if you turned a thousand into 44 million? I don't know. Why don't we move on to the next thing, which is this uh, cream hack that happened yesterday. We're recording on Thursday. So like, I guess yesterday morning, the news dropped that uh, a lending platform cream, which is similar to like Aave. So like you put on, you put in one type of crypto assets and allows you to get a loan based on that collateral out uh, another kind. So that there was a flash loan hack that drained like 120 or 130 million dollars uh, from from their smart contracts. So uh, you know everyone was was talking about this. It was only the third biggest hack in DeFi history. So um, you know still uh, still like in the range of the kind of stuff that happens on a week to week, month to month basis. So like I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Did you have any money in Cream, or do you uh, do you stay away from these kind of lending platforms? Um, I would not say that I stay away from these kinds of lending platforms. I think cream is the, um, exception to my buy the hack rule. I, um, I have, you know, one of the things Boomer and I have learned over the years in trading is, uh, if something isn't working for you, then just leave it alone. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I had bought cream because I really liked that narrative around like, we're just going to allow anybody that wants to, to come in here and, and, you know, deposit your, your new token for collateral and borrow. Um, but then I quickly realized um, how complicated that system is to manage and how error prone that system is because you know, you're basically just taking a lot of very complicated pieces and putting them together and allowing them to interact in a complicated way, right? So you're like, um, oh, you know, many, many multiples of complexity uh, within that system. So, you know, I I hope that they keep, you know, pushing forward. I hope that people that can afford to um, put their money into that system and like can can eventually get it to work. I don't know what success would look like for me to like trust cream. Uh, I think this is the fourth hack and it's, and it's always the same um, sort of thing. And they, they, they sort of take the same stance every time, which is, well, this isn't really our fault because um, you know, what they did is they introduced a new type of collateral and the hacker was able to like use a you know a, a specific characteristic of that collateral to to create you know a complicated interaction between all the other things in cream and then you know go and basically generate money out of thin air and then borrow all the assets in cream and then sell them um so yeah the 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 weird part about this hack was that the um 
the asset that had the bug in it, like all of the people holding that got rich, right? Like they uh, they doubled their money, right? Uh, because the hacker doubled the value of that asset in order to um, do this exploit. So that yeah, that, that, that was a little bit, um, I, I found that interesting. Um, yeah, it sucks really, really, I feel bad for anyone that lost any money in this. I, I, yeah, I personally am just, you know, I'm very careful about like what I'm willing to put my, um, uh, you know, whatever my money into my crypto, whatever in inside of DeFi. I, I think Danny, I heard him say this in an AMA, you know, this is the, uh, Dan, for those of you listening, Danny is the person who created, you know, spell ice time, um, was just like, yo, like you're making so much on these APYs. Um, like it doesn't matter if you get hacked. Right. So I, I agree. I think that if time is paying you 60,000% APY and you have $10,000 that you want to invest in crypto, like put a thousand dollars into it. Right. Don't, don't like, don't confuse yourself into thinking that if you put a hundred percent of all the money you have into this thing that you'll just become rich because like, yeah, it could get hacked. It could go to, to literally zero. Um, and I, uh, you know, I don't think that you should avoid the risk. I think you should just like manage the risk. Right. And for me, there's just nothing inside of cream, um, that makes me want to go participate, uh, in the system. I actually, somebody pointed out to me in the foot guns discord. Um, they, you know, I was like, Hey, um, I'm looking for places to like stake Bitcoin and, and borrow stables. And they're like, Oh, you could use cream. Or maybe it was a different time somebody mentioned cream, but I was just like, yeah, you should just be careful with cream. It's a, it's a very complicated system. And I think that was like a week before this recent hack. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to like sound like an asshole, but it was just like, yeah, it's, it was sort of like inevitable. It was sort of like going to happen. Um, I do think it's really, really cool again, that what they're trying to do. Um, but clearly they need to like show more, um, like energy back towards the community that they're trying to solve this problem, which I just don't see that. I think for the most part, again, the response that I saw was like, um, you know, Hey, it's your fault basically for <laughs> depositing your funds and you knew the risk, um, you know, which, which is fine. But again, like this is the fourth time, right? This is the fourth time a similar thing has happened. So I would just like to see something back from the team um, saying like how they're actually going to try and stop this from happening in the future. Yeah. And we have a, a friend at Badger who had an issue with them. And this is kind of, was kind of like the canary in the coal mine for me. Like he had a amount, he was depositing stable coins on cream and borrowing a different stable coin and got liquidated uh, his position, which was, I guess, I think pretty, pretty conservative. Like he wasn't borrowing anywhere near the max uh, of what he could be borrowing, but um, it was a stable coin that basically had kind of like a flash crash, what we were saying at the beginning with like the Bitcoin um, on Binance. But there was like a, a moment where the pool that the Oracle at cream was looking at to, to get the price was uh, super illiquid like there was a, one oracle that was looking at or the oracle was looking at a lp that just had a very small amount of funds in it and that was thrown out of whack by a transaction which 
caused an erroneous price reading to, to go to their Oracle, which caused the liquidation. But, you know, he lost, you know, five figures or something and kind of made a, made a big uh, an attempt uh, to, to get the funds back. But they were just kind of like, oh, no, kind of kind of stonewalled him. But, you know, it's something that shouldn't happen, right? Like if you're if you're depositing stables and it wasn't like a dodgy stable, it was like a pretty, pretty well known stable. Um, and he shouldn't have been liquidated because the Oracle was misconfigured, right? Like if the Oracle had been looking at a deep pool, um, it would have been fine. But because it, it was configured to look at this kind of dodgy pool, it, uh, it, it got liquidated. So, I mean, it's just kind of like one of those things, like on the surface, it could appear not risky, but I, I, I personally don't deal with like borrowing and lending on DeFi because of stuff like this, right? Because like in order to properly assess the risk, you kind of have to go several layers below the surface into documentation or even like below the docs, you know, a lot of times the documentation is not up to date and you have to know the right question to ask in discord and make sure that the smart contract is looking at the right place. And there, there's just like a lot of kind of below the surface risks that are hard to handicap as a, just kind of like a casual user. No, I mean, I completely agree. I, I mean, I think that's why, you know, I think anybody buying Shiba Inu that thinks that they have a, you know, narrative or reason or thesis behind their purchase is just kidding themselves, right? Because uh, there's just nothing there. I mean, somebody came into uh, the Footguns Discord uh, just today or yesterday talking about some, some crypto based on that Netflix series Squid Game. And then they were like, oh, wait, guys, like, don't buy this. Apparently, people are reporting that you just can't sell it. Like, you know, so, I mean, you, you know, all, all of these things are programmable smart contracts, right? Like you, you don't know what it is unless you understand what code is and you can go and you can read these things and you yourself are confident uh, in what, what it is that you're depositing into. Um, and yeah, other than that, like the, the only other way is like through time, right? Through time and through um, reputation. And I don't think you build a good reputation in your early years by telling your users that like it's their fault when there was clearly, um, you know, something that went wrong, uh, that, you know, something that went wrong on like the tech side, basically. Yeah. So that, that brings me to another point, which is, uh, the use of insurance to, to insure yourself against these kind of hacks. So, I was poking around a little bit on Nexus Mutual, which is like a DeFi insurance uh, provider. And it's it's quite interesting to see how they put the the rates on. So like, for example, um, Badger, where we're involved with, you know, you can buy insurance on funds that you have there for 2.6%. And that's the same as like Aave, it's the same as Cream, which is this one that just got exploited. 2.6% also for BlockFi. Um, so it seems like that's kind of quite a standard rate and it could make sense. And I think it probably wouldn't make sense like if I'm doing stable corn farming or just having a big position on some of these protocols to uh, to get this insurance. Like if you're, if you're getting an APY of uh, 10, 20, 30 higher percent, like 2.6% is nothing to pay to uh, to get insurance against this. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm I'm pretty biased. I think uh, Boomer carries the same bias that I have, which is basically just like insurance is a ripoff. I think um, it it it's just one of those things that like makes you feel like you're winning, but I mean, all you're doing is just giving up some of your winnings to the insurance company. There, um, actually, I was listening to Lynn Alden talk about um, hyperinflation on the uh, uh, What Bitcoin Did podcast. And she was bringing up the example of, um, you know, flying on an airplane and how uh, all these people overestimate the risk of flying on an airplane because when something does happen, uh, it's, you know, often catastrophic and in the news. But if you actually go and do the math on it, you know, the, the odds are that you're fine. So, you know, if this, if this insurance company is willing to offer you 2%, 2.6% per year to insure a position that you think will go to zero, um, they know something better than you do. Like, like why, why would they sell you that insurance? Right? Like, I, I, so, you know, I'm not, people, people need to manage their own risk or whatever, but there's another way to manage that risk, right? Which is just to not put as much money into the contract. So, uh, if you if you believe that there's a two point six percent chance uh, in three hundred sixty five days that you will lose a hundred percent of your funds, uh, you know, just downsize the amount that you put into the pool, right? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't really see it as you, you know. For instance, like I I went and I did. A, research on cream i did not see an advantage like i could have i own i don't i own a bunch of badger right like i could have i could have put my badger on cream and like borrowed state stable coins but i'm i you know i don't have an i a i don't have enough badger to do that in my opinion because i think the fees that cream charges um inside of their actual smart contracts are like way too expensive unless you're depositing like a million dollars of something or like I don't know, maybe a minimum $200,000 of, of a single asset or something like that. And then all the borrow rates are are extremely high too. So if you, in your mind, think that there's above a 2.6% chance that those funds are going to go to zero, like, I just, like, why are you there? Like, just go somewhere else. I, I don't know. I, I'm this is, this is pretty negative on cream, but uh, that's just my opinion about, like, risk management. <laughs> I just think it's more interesting that they have so 2.6 seems to be the default rate across many different DeFi protocols from cream, which has gotten hacked five times to Aave. That's, you know, seems to have like a, a much better reputation and Badger that has like, you know, hasn't had any security incidents. So it's just, uh, it's just interesting. I want, would like to learn more about how they're handicapping these rates and, and where they come from. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm also like, well, see, that's the other thing too. It's like, what if they suck, right? What if, what if 2.6% is wrong? What if really they should be, you should be paying them 25% for your insurance, right? What if, what if I'm totally wrong? And, um, you know, what you just said is like, these protocols are getting hacked left and right, right? So like, so if, if all they're charging is 2.6%, then they're all just going to go under, right? Like if, if, if the rate at which these protocols are being hacked is actually, more than that 2.6% rate, then all these insurance companies are just going to go belly up. So I, I, I just like, my point is just like, there ha- there can't, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? There's no way to get out of this 
this is a um, a, a zero sum game in the sense that like you can print as many tokens as you want, but you got to go like everybody wants to exit back to what they can use to buy food and houses. Right. And right now that's fiat. And so if that's the case, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, any, any of these protocols could, could lo- be lose interest overnight, especially if they get hacked. And so, yeah, I, I mean, these insurance DeFi insurance companies, uh, I hope they're smart, and I hope uh, that 2.6% rate. I mean, that sounds, off the top of my head, that sounds right to me. There's 10,000 DeFi projects, and, like, we see a hack every month or something like that. You know, I mean, 2.6% sounds high. Like, it's probably, you should probably be paying them 0.26%, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not, uh, I haven't bought any of this insurance. I think I would if it like, I'm going to go to this uh, topic in a minute, but starting to get paid in stable coins and starting to like think about uh, what to do with those. Got to keep some aside for taxes and want to keep that within DeFi to like try to earn some kind of like juicy uh, 20 or 30% stable coin yields, but it's not something that I want to have like any risk on. So I think for something like that, it could be worth uh, getting additional. See, what insurance. I do, what I do there again is like my my idea of risk management, like out outside of insurance, is you know I spread my stablecoin across multiple protocols. So like rather than being like, okay, I have a hundred k of stablecoin, let's put it on you know the juiciest APY. I'm like, okay, I have a hundred k of stablecoin, let's spread it out over as many different APY um, opportunities as I can. So like, for instance, I have some of it like outside of DeFi on BlockFi, like I have some of it on Avalanche, on Phantom, on Ar- Arbitrum, on Ethereum, on Polygon. Um, so, you know, I have, I, I'm taking on a lot of risk, but I, it's like decentralized risk or it's, you know, it's, um, uh, what's that word? Diversified. That's the, 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 the traditional uh, finance term. You know, I've, I've diversification of my stablecoin risk, basically. Uh, and the same is true. You know, I use USDC, Tether, um, tiny bits of like magic internet money, my, um, DAI, uh, you know, all, all these different things. So like in an attempt to have stablecoin, but to reduce the risk. So, for instance, if you know one of these protocols gets hacked, right? I'm going to lose two point six percent, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, just uh, I don't know. I, that, that's that's the way I feel about like risk management. Obviously, that took a lot of time and research um, for me to even like learn about all those opportunities, how to actually move the funds around, all that kind of stuff, and then to unwind it would take a bunch of time too. like, it, it, you know, it would take me at least an hour or two to just go around and like click a bunch of buttons to like get all of those funds out of those pools. Yeah. That's the thing that, I mean, thinking about like stablecoin farming on ETH, you have to have a pretty big stack to make it worth. Like if you're paying a hundred bucks or 150 bucks a transaction to get stuff in and out of, uh, curve or curve to convex or whatever like that's that's a pretty big percentage depending on what you're doing like if you're getting doing this monthly or something so yeah it's it's a lot of things to uh to weigh against each other yeah yeah no i mean there there's there's a huge risk of just like 
Ethereum fees, right? Like <laughs> bleeding out and gas fees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, for instance, like, what if you have, um, I mean, we saw what, what, what was it? We saw like $1,300 or something like that for a swap um, at the height, like, you know, when Bitcoin was kind of going crazy earlier this, this year when it was crashing from 40K to 30K. So even if you had, twenty thousand dollars of bitcoin like you know in uh, or or whatever ethereum or whatever in these um uh lps or something and you decide like oh on this day i really want to get my money out like that's 10 percent like gone you know that's it's kind of crazy do you have a uh a position size that you try to target in stable coins as kind of like a ballast to the portfolio or is that just something that you use for like short-term reserves? Yeah, I think that I do. And it depends on my um, like outlook, right? So for instance, the the Bitcoin um, monthly bias on the Footguns cheat sheet flip bullish this month. So like, yeah, I um, that, that for me was like the signal to, you know, start draining my reserves of stable coins back into into crypto um and then of course like once we hit the all-time high like i i pulled some of that back out um but yeah i mean i think like just off the top of my head like between five to twenty percent is is what i try and keep in in stable coins um and really just the idea being that i can capture like an opportunity of um you know like like uh you know just today and yesterday i mean earlier today i uh, before we started this podcast, right? Like I bought, I bought Bitcoin at, you know, 58,600, um, because I just had some stable coins like sitting around on avalanche and I was able to grab it, uh, without, you know, I mark or market bought it too, without limit orders. Um, so yeah, it's great to have (laughs) some liquidity sitting around. And then, you know, for instance, like I bought that Bitcoin, right? So, you know, I'm taking note of the fact that I'm now, um, much lower in stables than I was earlier today. So uh, I'm changing my like my view now to be like, okay, now I need to figure out like how to get some stable coin back out. Um, but but you know that's like that's the part of like investing and trading is like something's going your way, and you know you have five percent stable coin, and then all of a sudden like the things that you're holding like double. Um, yeah, maybe you should just go to 8% or something like that. Because that 8%, if you were to lose those other assets value, um, would be like 15%. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, there is a a time where I think it makes sense to uh, reduce reduce the amount you have. But I would would never uh, go below five, basically, because... um, I mean, if you, it's never, it's really never going to happen, but like, okay, everything you own could draw down 50% or it could draw down 80% or something like that. Um, and, and you really want to have some money left over to do something with, to, to get yourself back out because like that, I mean, it, you know, if, if there's an 80% crash on Bitcoin and you have 5% and you you just like, you know, just like, or whatever, I'm going to have cash flow somewhere else. I'm going to put this 5% in and then it goes back up. You know, this happens a lot in crypto. Like it goes back up 40% in the next 10 minutes. Like you just saved your portfolio. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You, you, th- you think about stable coins as like the option value of cash to have to take advantage of fluctuations, but you don't, you don't think about it as like 
for example, like there's another kind of portfolio construction argument where you would say like you have this super volatile asset, you have like ETH or Bitcoin or whatever, and you pair it 50-50 with USDC or a stable coin, and that's going to uh, give you lower beta returns kind of like over a Monte Carlo simulation of future uh, outcomes. And that's going to kind of like be a higher probabilistically adjusted return rather than just uh, kind of like YOLOing into the, into the volatile stuff. But like, it's more, it's it's not that it's more just like the option value. Yeah. See, I agree with what you just said. Like if you don't have a view, because if you don't really have a view, then yeah, you're basically, you're trying to like reduce the amount of risk of like, okay, what happens if this thing that I don't really know about uh, goes wrong? But yeah, when you have a view, meaning like like for instance you know i publish the foot guns cheat sheet every day and so i you know i have learned to trust the biases um and the resistance levels and support levels so you know if i see bitcoin like sitting around at support and all of a sudden the bias flips from neutral to bullish or whatever or or even from bearish to neutral um i'm gonna buy and i'm probably gonna buy bigger than I would without that information. You know what I mean? Like without that information, it would be prudent to put 5% of your portfolio, but with that information, you should put in 8%. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, so from stable coin farming, let's, uh, go to kind of like a deeper topic, which is kind of like the granddaddy of stable coin farming in DeFi, which is, um, the curve platform. So you're uh, doing more stuff with Badger, you know, like Badger's becoming more and more invested in convex and controlling convex. Um, And the reason for that is that it controls like each convex token controls like eight voting curve tokens. And this is kind of like one of the fundamental sources of yield in DeFi is the emission of these curve tokens. And I think Anyone who's serious about DeFi has been taking a deep dive on this and trying to like understand where this is coming coming from. And it's one of these protocols that Curve is going to be emitting tokens for the next, uh, I guess, like 299 years, or they have a 300-year emission schedule for the CRV token. And so it's this like super long-term source of yield in DeFi. And many people, like one of the biggest places to get yield on your stable coins is providing liquidity on curve and getting the CRV token in, in return. So what's, um, I don't know, like, I think you were, you were messaging me the other day that you're, you had a realization that like curve is DeFi or is like the kind of critical piece of DeFi. So what, what was your aha moment there and what have you kind of learned about curve lately? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, all like the, the, <laughs> you have Ethereum, which is like the fundamental productive asset, right? Which is like, it's the, it's the most secure chain that you can run smart contracts on currently. And then you have Bitcoin, which is this like ultra secure money, basically, you know, if, if you're, if, if we're like living in the, in the DeFi world. Um, so, you know, the, between Bitcoin and Ethereum, those are like what everyone believes to be, you know, the reserve sort of assets. Um, and then everyone wants yield, 
and what you know what curve basically is doing is like okay cool like bring your ethereum bitcoin and stable coins here so that people can swap them and then we'll we'll literally just print a new token out of thin air and give it to you if you provide liquidity but then they um you know they adjust like how the swapping is done um how the liquidity i mean how the how the tokens are given out to liquidity providers so that it's like trying to create a fair system so that if you're the one that is using curve you know to provide bitcoin ethereum uh stablecoin liquidity um then you're going to get rewarded by this inflation schedule that they have and then what you solve on that is like you you saw everyone else sort of build protocols on top of, of curve where they were trying to optimize like the curve strategy, you know, for instance, like Badger's doing it with Bitcoin and um, Yearn does it. And, you know, you mentioned Convex, you know, there's, there's all these different protocols that are, that, that have emerged that are, you, you know, are using the curve protocol uh, to try and earn yield. And then curve curve does separate itself from, you know, a sushi swap or a uni swap um, in, you know, the, the, the name itself curve, right? Which it, it refers to like how the actual assets are adjusted um, based on swaps that go on. So when you, when you trade, you know, Bitcoin for Ethereum on Uniswap, there's a different outcome uh, that if you trade Bitcoin for Ethereum on curve. And I think, um, you know the tri crypto pool that they they just released which is which has bitcoin ethereum and usdt tether um all in the same pool is like one of the most efficient pools in all of DeFi as far as um getting a good rate on a swap so if you're if you're trying to like move a whole bunch of money it's like the place to be um because you're gonna get the best rate so yeah it, and it's uh one of the other thing curves Curve advertises is they say that they create five to ten times higher liquidity than uh, the Uniswap invariant that's used to do the swapping, um, which generates higher profits for liquidity providers. So, you know, for me, it seems like where are you going to find the best, stickiest liquidity in DeFi? It's going to be on Curve. And so then the yield, like whatever the yield that's being generated on Curve for me is like that's sort of like the base yield of DeFi. It's like you can't really find a better rate than that because everything else is fleeting. You know, um, you might see something show up for a few months or something like that. But but, you know, this real yield as in turning your money into more Bitcoin and more Ethereum, right, um, is on curve. And then you have things like spell and magic internet money that, that takes it even further because that then, you know, they're offering a way to deposit these curve um, vaults and then like, you know, mint more magic internet money and then go buy more curve vault and mint more money and that sort of thing. And then that magic internet money gets locked into time, which offers this huge APY. So yeah, I mean, for me, it just feels like, Whichever direction you go, you and it seems like your like curve is is the best base yield. I mean, uh, you know, Ohm Ohm has is an exception in the sense that Ohm is locking 
um, LUSD fracks and dye. And then out of that, you know, dye is the only thing that has any sort of like um, base yield attached to it through maker. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not, I mean, if you look at the, the yield generated by spell compared to, to dye, it's just very minimal. Um, so yeah, I mean, it actually, it actually makes me like more bullish on time than Ohm, uh, in that sense. Like if, I don't know if, if we're just going to have like a ton of Ohm clones, then for me, I think the only way that they separate themselves is like what they lock in their treasury. Um, but yeah, so I don't, I don't know. It's like a, a long winded explanation that like curve to me seems like, you know, it's a infinite inflationary ac- asset, which is not true, right? It has the, um, uh, the, like you said, after like 400 years or something, it's supposed to, um, be done with. And then the, the, the amount of curve that gets printed over time is also reducing. So the, the, the rate or whatever of inflation is sort of like, dwindling off but yeah i don't know it, to me i've looked at a lot of DeFi protocols and when i think about five years in the future which one is going to be producing five percent yield for bitcoin holders um curve seems like it's going to be the one i don't know i don't i don't know how long um sixty thousand or eighty eight thousand or whatever apys are going to last you know yeah, so I guess the the question in my mind is that so I get that Curve has the best platform for swapping stable coins and swap and swapping between like different flavors of ETH or different flavors of Bitcoin, these assets that are the same or very close to the same value, right? Like they create concentrated liquidity around the peg like 99 cents, a dollar, dollar one and for that reason, they can charge like super low fees and slippage um, in that narrow band, right? So like, I get that they have this technology and that lets them do that. But what I I don't understand is why, like we were looking before the show, you know, Curve has what, it, like $360 million a day of volume. Um, they have, they've like become this hub, right? Like they've, they've, become the network effect or they've become the place to do this. Whereas like other protocols in DeFi, like you think like Uniswap getting forked by Sushi or, um, you know, I know there, there've been other curve kind of forks, but they haven't been anywhere near as successful. Like what, what is it about curve that has made it, I was like, say like fork resistant, like why, why has no one else been able to kind of like capture a big piece of that market share? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, <laughs> I don't know the answer, but like if I was to guess, I, you know, if you've been on their website, right, it looks like, um, you know, it looks like it was built in like 1995 or whatever. It's like a text-based video game or whatever. Um, a bulletin so board just, uh, service. Yeah, I just feel like um, whoever the, the team is behind Curve, like just has a lot of respect from investors and um you know, they're just like, cool, well, I can barely understand what these people are doing. So I'm going to put my faith in this team because they seem to, um, you know, understand this really well. And anybody that clones them, like, do they really understand this? You know, why are they, you know, so I, I guess I just feel like because Curve itself is such a complex system that if you're to clone it, then you have to have like a very, very strong narrative around why you cloned it and why your clone is 
a better clone like you know where like the sushi narrative narrative around um uniswap was like a pretty easy sell it was like you know uh we want to provide a uh, return to everybody that holds sushi versus just single lps or whatever um and then you know the curve narrative is pretty simple over uniswap which is just we have a we have a better algorithm for swapping and we have a better uh logic around how we reward lpers um but yeah the curve system itself is very very uh complex and people have um taken from curve you know like for instance um the 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 locking the vote locking and stuff like that a lot of people have copied that system um even if they haven't like made curve itself and then the other thing that i think curve has done really really well is it's it's um following all the you know sushi is the only other um DeFi protocol i've seen that's been quite on top of just expanding to all the other um layer twos and alternate chains that are out there i mean curve is on I mean, a lot of protocols. I think it's like ten or something now. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure Sushi is still beating them, but um, pretty impressive compared to a lot of the DeFi protocols, which are still, you know, on wherever they launched. Yep, I don't think it would be a uh, dumb strategy to just buy the native token of any layer that uh, Curve and Sushi deploy on. I think we've talked about that before, but yeah, like. If curve goes there, you know that there's going to be some decent. Uh, yeah, again, I mean, see, that's where I like I like to use these things, right? It's like <laughs> you don't always necessarily have to buy sushi, buy curve, or buy this insurance that you're talking about, but you can get an idea that 2.6 percent is the rate that they think things are going to get hacked. You can get an idea of the chains that, like, you know, if curve and sushi are moving onto a chain, then you expect that that team did a bunch of research before they moved onto that chain right so um yeah i mean i i like to use these things as as signals and not just um you know oh should i go buy this or whatever cool so um i guess st staying on curve a little bit like the the kind of like DeFi, i don't know DeFi 1.0 the idea was like okay we're gonna farm the CRV token, which is this curve reward token, and then we're going to dump it and then we're going to auto compound it back into like Bitcoin or stable coins or whatever asset you kind of like want. Do you think that's going to be a mistake? Like, do you think we're going to look 10 or 20 years in the future and curve is going to moon because people are going to realize how valuable that token is and everyone's going to regret having uh, farmed it and dumped it in uh, DeFi 1.0? Yeah, I do. I think the I think there's going to be somebody that figures out the like the sweet spot or whatever of how much to dump versus how much to hold over time. Uh, it does seem like they've they've built a pretty interesting system around uh, you know once you lock your curve, then you can vote on which pools get rewarded. So the more curve you acquire, you know, the more rewards your pool gets. Um, so yeah, I mean, it does seem like you're giving up a lot uh, in the long run if you're just immediately dumping your curve. And so then the the protocols that are starting to build on top of that, like you have Convex, which came along and incentivized people to uh, stake with them because in addition to the curve rewards, you're getting this Convex token. And what happened is that over time, Convex built up 
I don't know, close to half of the voting power in Curve. So it has this kind of like meta governance role in Curve now where they're a huge player or kingmaker in like figuring out where the yield is going to go, like which of these assets is going to get yield on Curve. So what's, um, I don't know, how do you look at Convex strategically? Like, is there is there anything stopping another protocol from pulling a Convex to Convex and farming their token and, and getting getting governance stake built up? Like, where, where does this cycle end? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I feel like that's like the key question to DeFi, right? Like, <laughs> um, it does feel like DeFi, you know, with its Lego building block sort of things, it's like every time you make something, you can just put another layer on top of it. Um, so yeah, where does it end? I have no idea. I do think someone will come in and try and do exactly what you said um, and build a layer like on top of Convex. I mean, is it... Uh, I haven't I haven't quite like started following the Vodium stuff yet, but I mean, isn't that kind of uh, heading in that direction? I don't know. I mean, Vodium doesn't have their own token, as far as I know. Like Vodium is where if you have Convex that is locked, you can go either, uh, you know, get bribes for how you vote on with your Convex, um, or you can just delegate it to Vodium and then they're going to kind of vote how they think is optimal and then distribute the bribes to you. So, um, but they don't have another token. Like I think my, my thinking is like, it's going to be one of these like VC crypto VCs that's going to realize and like inject kind of like extrinsic money into the system to farm some token or try, you know, because like at any point, like if you think this curve voting is going to be, the base layer of DeFi, like on any given day, it's as cheap as it's ever going to be, right? So it makes sense to to pull the trigger today rather than a year from now when once more it's emitted, right? Because once if you get a big stake in it today, that's going to just compound going forward. So someone, I, I mean, my guess is that someone, some, you know, VC or one of these, uh, you know, big, uh, big stacks is going to come in and try to like, make a big play for this and, and uh, either come up with a protocol on top of it or just grab as much convex as they can and, and use that as a kind of uh, kind of weight to sling around. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. I, I think we're, we're not even, I think we're, our minds are going to be blown if, if Bitcoin really does start getting some really wide adoption. Um, you know, I'm, let's say three to five years from now, the price is at $300,000 a, a token. Uh, you know, DeFi is going to be a pretty serious place with um, a lot of money trying to find yield, you know, and, and yeah, I think uh, curve positioning itself as it has, as, as sort of like the great, great grandfather of DeFi or whatever. Um, yeah, I think someone's going to see the opportunity and come in pretty big, but then a lot of bigger people are going to come in right behind them, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting times. I'm definitely, I mean, it has this recursive quality to it, and it definitely is a probably the most uh, interesting strategy game that I've ever seen or that, you know, it's playing out and the stakes are just going to get bigger and bigger, like you said, as, uh, as uh, Bitcoin and ETH grow. 
Yeah, cool. no, and I mean that's a great point too. It's like it really is a game, and because you know you can't turn off DeFi, right? And and that's that's really the the best part about it is it's like okay, well, um, everyone's sitting here arguing about whether or not this thing is sustainable but if you're the guy that's in there farming it you're making tons of money right and then um you you end up playing the game right and then this ends up being a game that expands and gets popular right you're 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 going to be doing really well it's hard to say like say that curve is not going to be here right it has it has 18 billion dollars of deposits um you know we're not talking about something like Shiba Inu that has $30 billion market cap, right? We're talking about deposits. So that's $18 billion in, you know, other cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, stable coins, and various other cryptos. Um, so yeah, that's a, that, that's a bank, right? That's a, <laughs> it's a pretty large bank. <laughs> so talking about like playing the uh, curve CVX game we had on our agenda, to kind of like go over the latest uh, news and drama in the uh, Danny verse. So like this is this guy, uh, Daniel, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, da- Danny, Daniel Siesta, Sinesta, who's uh, one of like, I don't know, the hottest uh, DeFi devs. He's got all these projects going on. And so he has a uh, spell, which is ma- magic internet money. So it's this kind of like, uh, DeFi stable coin that's based on um, yield producing um, assets like urine vaults. And then he's got ICE, which is this automated uh, liquidity provision, uh, Univ3 thing. And then he's got time, which is the, the fork of Ohm. And I, I had been struggling to kind of like figure out, okay, what what is the grand strategy? Like how do these three things fit together? And I think you had a kind of some some good thoughts on that so i don't know where do you want to take this like what 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 how would you what what would you say is the game that he's playing and how uh how do you think these these pieces fit together yeah i think for me it's it's what is it it's just like two or three like main pieces it's you Okay, so for, so first of all, maybe it's like four or five. You have you have Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? We're going back to what I'm saying earlier, which is like these are like your sort of um, pristine collateral assets, and uh, you know there's there's a lot more Ethereum in DeFi than than Bitcoin right now, but they're both sort of viewed as the thing that you want to hold on to for many many years and earn yield on. And so what Danny's idea is is that you use spell okay like abracadabra.money is the website um spell is the sort of the sushi token for it it's basically you know it's the 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 thing that you hold if you want to earn um the value that the protocol generates so you stake it as s spell and then you earn all the fees that the protocol generates but what the protocol does is it allows you to stake your you know things like ethereum and bitcoin in uh, these different vaults that are earning yield and then take that yield uh, earning, you know, mechanism, you know, so it's it's a smart contract that's earning yield and you lock it into Abracadabra to mint magic internet money. So basically what you're doing is you're, you know, you're taking all the money that's locked inside of Ethereum and Bitcoin and you're, you're turning it back into like a liquid form. Um, And, you know what what's important though is that um 
Magic Internet Money has, um, you know, solid liquidity because if if you trade Magic Internet Money and it just like goes down in price or whatever, then what's the point of of minting it, right? You want it to be one to one with the U.S. dollar because everyone uses the U.S. dollar like as unit of account. Um, so what ICE and also Time are trying to do is ICE is trying to uh, concentrate liquidity. So, um, and, and, you know, I was, I was just reading something. I'm still not sure if ICE is a uni V3 clone or is a, like something that like uses uni V3. I'm pretty sure it's a uni V3 clone. Um, the, the, way so I, the way I've heard it described by him on the, Danny has a good, uh, episode of the Yunt capital podcast where he kind of talks about, he doesn't talk about time, but he talks about ice and spell and, the way he pitched it there was like when uni v3 came out it's a much harder system for like an average person to use than a sushi or uni v2 because uni v3 you have to pick what range you're supplying liquidity in in these positions right and it's really lucrative you can earn a lot more fees than lping with uni v2 but it's very quantitative right like you have to kind of like there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And if you set your range wrong, you can get wrecked. Or if you, if you um, don't adjust them properly, like as, as market conditions change, then you can get wrecked. So there's just like a lot of ways. It's not just like you enter this LP and just kind of sit on it. It's more like you have to manage it. So it's almost like a delegated management of that where they, it will look at your wallet. It'll say like, okay, I see you have ETH and USDT and sushi here's what i suggest for you to lp like here's what i think are the best strategies for you to do lp and then it kind of like manages that for you right right yeah yeah and and my understanding of why he wants ice so much is that um when you you know properly manage this uni v3 system you can concentrate liquidity around where it's needed the most. And so basically you can stop the price from swinging around. So volatile, you know, when, you know, kind of like the thing that I was talking about on Binance where it's like, there was no reason for someone to have orders at $8,000 being filled when there was all these people that wanted to buy Bitcoin at a higher price, you know? So uh, um, what, what, what ice sort of does is like, it looks for where people want to be selling things and gives them that liquidity in an attempt to stop the price from moving. Um, but in doing so, it captures the fees, right? Um, so, you know, what what you do, you know, what you end up creating with Spell, Ice, uh, and then, yeah, we didn't talk about time, but but with Spell and Ice is um, you, you can, you know, basically print a bunch of magic internet money with your Bitcoin and Ethereum that are earning these yields and then swap that magic internet money back into something, you know, either uh, reinvest it in a, in a crypto or or get it back into a stable coin that you can uh, then turn back into like fiat and, and go buy a real world thing with. Um, and then where time, I think, comes into play is uh, I think it's a, a move on Avalanche, right? Obviously, like it was launched on Avalanche. Um, so, you know, one of the things that time is bonding is Avalanche itself. So like Ohm is bonding, uh, WF, 
time bonds, uh, avalanche, uh, or W avax or whatever it's called. Um, and so it's, you know, it's as time is, uh, or sorry, as avalanche network is growing and more liquidity is coming into that network. Um, time is capturing that because it's basically giving you a discount, you know, to mint time, uh, with your avalanche. So if you're bullish on Avalanche, then like you should go play this sort of like time game uh, where you can buy Avalanche, uh, you know, whenever you see it's at a discount and then mint time with it uh, through the bonding mechanism. Um, but then the other thing that they're doing is they lock magic Internet money. So um, they're creating magic Internet money liquidity on site, you know, inside of um, the Avalanche network. Um, so this, you know, this creates a use for magic internet money. And then it also creates a, um, uh, you know, basically a, a cross chain, um, liquidity pool between, uh, you know, avalanche and Ethereum. And then he took time over, um, uh, which, which it's stake time, by the way, is like W memo on fa- on the phantom network. I know mm-hmm. this is a lot of, uh, <laughs> jargon, but basically what you end up doing is like you have these mempools that are now on Avalanche, Phantom, and Ethereum. And so you can use um, the Abracadabra website to sort of send magic internet money back and forth between all these chains and capture um, arbitrage opportunities. So it like all of those three systems working together basically provides better prices across DeFi. <laughs> like that's the the long run is that you end up with like better pricing across DeFi and you have like a value capture system where if you're a person that understands uh, the value of Ethereum and Bitcoin and like, you know, price action, where they're going and that sort of thing, you can use um, magic internet money to like gain leverage and have a bigger impact like across DeFi. Yeah, I do, I do think like out of the three projects, the one I'm most bullish on is Magic Internet Money because essentially it's a stable coin that is not built with reference to uh, centralized stable coins. Like it's not, doesn't like DAI has USDC, which is centralized. It can get turned off. So it's based, like it has, it's a, uh, what do they call it? Collateralized debt position based stable coin. So you're putting in collateral. Um, but instead of that collateral being centralized assets, it's these like urine vaults or X sushi or, or these, these very DeFi native products that are earning their own yield from like sushi trading fees or from whatever urine vault is doing, um, underneath to, to create a yield. So it, it is this like even further removed, source of value that's coming from within DeFi itself rather than a, like a tether, which has questions or a USCC, which is centralized or, 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 you know, the other stable coins that you right, right. have. The, big, have their the biggest issues. advantage it has is the visibility, right? You can, if you want to know what magic internet money is backed by, you can go on the website and you can look and you can see all of the things that it's backed by. And then the crazy part about it is it's backed by, like you said, it's backed by a bunch of yield earning assets. So, Theoretically, a lot of these loans are just going to pay themselves off. Yeah, so I don't know, putting it together. So you have like magic internet money, which is the the cross-chain stable coin. And then in order to 
create liquidity for that on curve. Danny needs to bribe the shit out of people on uh, Vodium and uh, and in these uh, in the in the convex uh, voting game. So he's doing that. That's creating a peg for Magic Internet money, making sure it's it's kind of like a tier one stable coin because they're these really deep curve pools that have a ton of liquidity with the other stable coins, right? So it's he has to play that game to support Magic Internet money as as like a, a player in stable coins, right? And then it has this cross chain aspect to it, which I think is didn't didn't he just announce a, like a free transfer using uh, using the bridge, the uh, AnySwap bridge? Like, am I yeah, on that? yeah. I, I See, mean, that's I've been, like a huge piece of it. I've been doing this for two weeks now. Just you, you use abracadabra.money and there's a bridge on there. And so, like, for instance, you can you know if you're if you're on Avalanche and all of a sudden you see something on Phantom you want, right? You can just sell into Magic Internet money, transfer over to Phantom. And like often, you know, sometimes like I'll send, you know, $5,000, $10,000. It just does it like almost nearly instantly. And so then all of a sudden I have access to liquidity on this entirely different chain, like in a few seconds. It's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, if you've used a bridge, like in one of these Ethereum bridges where it's, you know, 50 bucks of gas fees and you wait and you know pay it, this it, it really is kind of an important uh important innovation and then yeah ice so then ice is going to launch again you know they were hacked and are recovering from it but that's going to enable i guess with the concentrated liquidity it's going to enable even better liquidity for mim and then mim is also going into time which is the the ohm fork um so yeah, I think I don't know. It's it's really interesting how all these pieces fit together. Um, Danny's one of those people that is you know whatever your stance, it's important to watch and and know what he's doing. He's got a branching out into his media empire. He's got this uh, frog army meme and podcast and stuff. So those are uh, kind of like required uh, listening for uh, people who are into DeFi. I would say. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, we should probably stop. I know this is like, I mean, I feel like I keep going for another hour or something, but uh, yeah, I know the, 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 these topics are just sort of insane at this point. The The entire space is just expanding so fast. Um, it's incredible. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see like what the next six months uh, look like for, for all these things that we've been talking about. 